day. Look to your war gear. Hello Battle Brothers and welcome to episode 8 of the Grimdark Podcast. This is James. And this is Mike. Tonight we are back around to Death Watch. It's our second Death Watch show. Uh, I sort of ran a few uh, figures during the, uh, the last couple of months to see how well our shows are going in terms of downloads. And I have to say that so far, Mike, our uh, first Death Watch episode was our least patronised show as it was. Yeah, well, I suppose there maybe aren't many people playing Death Watch or perhaps they just... That's true. Well, it's certainly the uh, the game that we've played the least of, but I still think that it's funny because to me, Death Watch is one of those sort of iconic settings. You know, Space Marines were such a major part of 40k from its very inception that uh, I think it's interesting that there's not more people keen on the Death Watch setting. Yeah, I think it comes down a little bit to people thinking that uh, Space Marines are sort of a little bit unplayable, like. Not so much boring, but it's going to be very samey every mission. I can understand why people feel that way. It isn't exactly true, but I think there's that misconception. Alright, well, we're still going to talk about it anyway. Yep. Uh, so, first off, if you're new to the show, uh, as you might have already picked up, we are a podcast devoted to role-playing in the Warhammer 40k setting, particularly the five game systems created by Fantasy Flight Games. Uh, so, thank you all for, uh, for tuning in and having listened to us. We had a new uh, iTunes review from PTD27, so fantastic review there. Thanks very much to that person for, for the review. Okay, so let's get into what we're talking about today. Uh, after our news section, we're going to, uh, once again, be talking about Death Watch. Our initial thought was to um, talk about miniatures in, in gaming. So this really, this conversation applies not only to Death Watch, but to all of the settings. But I do think that Death Watch probably has the most scope for tactical combat. Uh, depending on how you run the game. So I think that uh, using miniatures in role-playing uh, in any game setting it can sort of have a lots, of, lots of pros and cons. Uh, but I think given that, you know, we're talking about a role-playing game here derived from a, uh, a war game, I think that miniatures have a, a sort of a special place in this game system as well. Yeah, I'd agree with that. Yeah. After that, we're going to uh, be talking about the Assault Marine. We'll go into that specialty and give you a few hints about the character, how to build it, how to play it. Uh, we're going to do a review of Mark of the Xenos, uh, and finally, we're going to have a talk about the importance of war gear in the, the 40k setting, and especially how it pertains to marines. Uh, and then finally, we'll do our regular community section, give you some contact information, and sign out. So, Mike, you ready to jump straight into it? Yes, let's get started. Let's go. Command acknowledged. Accessing Imperial Archives. Okay, welcome to our news section. Um, been to sound like a bit of a broken record here, but there's no new information out of uh, FFG at the moment on any of the game systems. I think everyone's anxiously waiting the next sort of update of what's going to happen with the, the Dark Heresy beta. Now that they've announced the last update was the final one, I think people are looking forward to hearing a, a, a date or a plan for it. Personally, I'm going to predict that we might hear about a potential release at Gen Con this year. Oh, makes sense. Um don't know how true it is, but it makes sense. Yeah, well, I mean, that's, that's what they did with pretty much every other system, is they released a sort of a, a, an early version at Gen Con and then put it out in store shortly after. Yeah. But time will tell, obviously. Yes. Uh, one bit of FFG news I will mention that's not actually from these five settings, but uh, if you've ever played the board game Relic, uh, and Relic is sort of a, 
a reskin of the old uh, Games Workshop Talisman game into a, a completely 40k setting. They've just announced a new expansion pack for Relic, which is called Nemesis. And uh, Nemesis adds uh, a player versus player element to the game by adding in heretics, demons, xenos that can work against the group when it comes to reaching the, uh, the inner ring, uh, but also the opportunity for Imperial characters in the game to pick up prescribed items and make enemies of the other players. So uh, if you're a fan of that game system, Mike, you've played Talisman. You haven't played Relic, though, have you? No. No, I played no. the original Talisman, um, and it took forever to play. I'm not going to make any comments. Oh, look. Uh, ironically, Talisman was actually the first place I encountered 40k because before I found the Rogue Trader book, when I was playing um, Talisman and all its expansions, the the Timescape expansion, which came out the year after Rogue Trader first launched, had a Space Marine character in it. And that was literally the first time I'd ever seen anything from the sort of Warhammer 40k properties. So, you know, I suppose Talisman sort of ties into the game pretty closely for me. Yeah, it's certainly got a part in the old history, but... Um, yeah. yeah, well, because Relic is much closer as well, so... Ah, definitely. It's, yep. it's just that, as far as board games go, it takes a long time to play a game. Yeah, that's, the oh, I'm not going to go too much into Talisman, but certainly the older version. You know, if you, all you had was a base box, yes, you had a long game. If you had all the expansions, you had an entire weekend set aside for multiple arguments and people <laughs> cracking it and leaving the game eventually. And what better way to add to that weekend of enjoyment of arguments by than by making it so that players can kill each other? That's it. Well, <laughs> as characters, anyway. Yes. Though it may lead to the occasional player-on-player death. That's it. Uh, now, Games Workshop. Um, bit of a change there recently. Uh, White White Dwarf, which has been uh, for a long time Games Workshop's monthly publication uh, in, in various countries, is going through a change now. Uh, White Dwarf is actually going to become a weekly publication from February 1st. Um, they're targeting a 36-page publication for each episode or each issue, uh, and they're saying that you can expect each issue to be at about the same price as a single pot of paint. So in Australian dollars, that's, I think, $6 is what they charge for the paint, so a $6 weekly magazine. And also they've announced that they're bringing out a new magazine called Warhammer Visions, which will basically be a monthly magazine sort of filling the old spot that White Dwarf used to have, and that's sort of targeting the 230-page mark. So... Mike, any comments there? Any thoughts there at all? Um, I think it's a bit of a shame, really. I, I mean, White Dwarf has been a monthly magazine for as long as I can remember. It just seems like a bit of a strange choice. But I suppose the market has changed. I think that when we were first uh, engaged in the hobby, especially when we both worked at Games Workshop, that the White Dwarf magazines then were all a single magazine for every country, weren't they? Uh, originally, yes. Yeah. yeah, and then subsequently each country had its own version of White Dwarf, its own writing team, its own sort of stories as well. Yeah. Yeah, we've actually... One of our uh, our friends from our regular role-playing group uh, appeared in an old issue of White Dwarf we discovered recently. There's a picture of him playing Warhammer 40k and the uh, his name is Pat and the caption says, Pat explains his twisted version of the rules to Jeremy. So, and of course this friend of ours is given to uh, creative interpretation of rules, certainly, so... It was amusing to see that even 20 years ago he had a reputation. Yes. So I guess it's a bit of a end of an era for White Dwarf, or a bit of a change anyway. So that's uh, really the end of our news section, so why don't we just kick straight into our setting discussion.
Yes. Knowledge is power. Hide it well. Welcome to our Sydney discussion. And as we mentioned earlier, we're actually going to be talking about the benefits, the pros, cons, considerations when using miniatures in the uh, the 40k RPGs. And I guess this really applies to any RPG, really. But uh, uh, we're going to talk specifically in, in the case of, of uh, Death Watch here. Uh, so, I guess the first thing is is why would you want to use miniatures? That's probably the, the first real question. And I'm going to actually take this to the side of one second and actually just do a different discussion. And that's about the way that players you know, will often enjoy some form of visualization of their characters. So, you know, we all have a, a picture in our head of what our character looks like. And uh, I know it's one of those sort of classic role-playing cliches is when the, the group meets each other for the first time or a new person turns up, the first thing the GM will say to the group is, okay, you know, either this here's a description of the person or say to the person, okay, I want you to describe yourself. And Mike, you might recall, you know, we had old friends that used to say things like, uh, I look like Bruce Willis with a mohawk or something like some, you know, just pick something that everybody recognizes and then adds your own sort of flair to it as such. And uh, over time, you know, you might get people who are more keen to describe quite verbosely what their character looks like in terms of personal style, movement, all these sorts of things. But once again, we're still talking about a description and you're relying upon the other person in the group understanding what you're saying and forming the same or a similar mental picture in their head to what you've produced. Uh, and of course, one of the other options there is uh, images. So a lot of people will find artwork for their character. A lot of people will find photos from movies or, or scenes from, from films or something. Um, some people are good enough to draw. Um, I myself quite enjoy 3D art. So I got into Daz Studio uh, about a year ago and I've been doing a lot of... Every time I do a new character for a game, I tend to render the character in Daz. And uh, I, I currently run a White Wolf Scion game where I have all the characters and all the NPCs all rendered in Daz and the players there have really sort of said that they've enjoyed having that visualization of their characters above and beyond what they imagine. Uh, and of course, miniatures is just one more step. You know, Once again, you're talking about a visual representation of your character. Uh, obviously, because of the scale, it's not going to be as detailed as an image might be, but it's still your character represented in a way that everybody else can can see in the game. So, Mike, I mean, what do you think of that as a statement about visualization of the character? Um, I think it is important because, as you mentioned, people aren't going to picture a description the same way as the person giving the description. And sometimes important things can be left out, such as gender, which happens relatively frequently in some games, where if someone's playing a gender other than their own, um, someone will say at some point later on in the game, wait, you're a woman. Um yeah, they'll, they'll tend to refer to the player by their actual gender pronoun rather than their character's pronoun, for example. Yes, and th- that isn't a huge problem, but sometimes it can be if they just completely gloss over that part of the description. And that happens as well, because, let's be honest, when everyone goes around and describes each other, the main thing is everyone's thinking, oh, shit, I have to describe my character next. Yeah, that's, that's true. All right, so you've got that thing there where a miniature is just another way to... Uh, bring your character to life in the scope of the game and, and, and personalise them as well. Uh, that's just a visual representation. Now, actually using that miniature in a in an actual sort of functional way in the game, I sort of try to think of a few benefits of where miniatures will really, or how miniatures will benefit the game. 
so I thought first off, you've got a, a, a visual connection to the battlefield. So the GM's going to describe scenery, he's going to describe cover, enemies, distances, locations, and having it all on the table in front of you, while it's not, you know, literally putting you in the scene, it, it is a greater level of immersion. In the same way that a GM might use music or audio to create a great sense of immersion, having uh, something that visually connects you to the game experience uh, will also it will enhance that, that sort of immersive quality. I thought that it's it's going to make it easier to employ battlefield tactics. You know, So you want to flank an enemy, you want to gang up or isolate somebody. It's much easier to sort of plan those tactics out when you can actually see what's going on. A lot of times in games I've seen situations where a, a GM will describe an environment and a, a, a players will say, okay, we want to do this, 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 and this. And the GM sort of says, well, that doesn't work because the battlefield's not laid out like that. And so what's happened there is the GM's described it and the players have listened to that description and interpreted it and come up with a different visual picture in their head. Uh, and there's been a disconnect there and they've had to sort of work around where the, where the problem is. And of course, having this laid out battlefield on the table in front of you is going to help you make those plans. What do you think of that one, Mike? Um, I definitely agree with that, especially because I think there's um, some of the actions, especially for combat, do require the characters actually knowing exactly where everyone is. For example, grappling um, and maneuver, which is one of the actions you can take, where you make your role, they make their opposed role, and then you physically move them on the battlefield into a more favourable position. And that is a bit harder to do with just descriptions, but if you want to actually move them into a kill zone or so that they are closer to another another character, maps and um, models is definitely a better way of doing it. Alright, so what you were saying there before actually sort of lends into the next thing I was going to say, which is I think that miniatures give you a better ability to use some of the talents and, and rules of the game. So, you know, a lot of talents have specific ranges. I mean, even even stuff as simple as movement. I know as a gym, you know, a person will say to me, oh, how far away is that bad guy? You know, and I'll say, oh, I'll just put a number of I'll say, oh, 15 metres. And they're like, oh, I can only charge 12 metres. And I thought, oh, well, I'm happy for you to be in charge since I just pulled a number out of my head as to where where that person is in my sort of concept in my mind. Whereas if you've got the, the miniatures there, you can actually utilise a lot of those abilities which are derived from you know, location, you know, having multiple attackers, having certain abilities or or, close, or or nearness to cover or somewhere you can sort of put your weapon, for example. So I thought that was one of those sort of things worth considering. Okay, yeah, uh, I think that's all fair fair thing to say. Uh, it gives you a better idea of line of sight. So, I mean... I know that the war game has had multiple iterations of how you work out line of sight, everything from a laser pointer to simply going down to a, a model's eye view. Uh, but of course, you know, if you wanted to work out who can or can't see what in the battlefield, you can utilize any of those features with miniatures in the game. Obviously, provided you've got things like 3D terrain, um, multi-level terrain, if it's just miniatures on a, a drawn map that doesn't give you quite a clear or at least it'll let you work out if a building edge is in the way for example but uh, it, it, there are certain advantages there and also when it comes to working out cover so you can look at a model and say okay well looking from this model's eye view I can't see that model's legs so I could assume that any hit that hits a leg location 
therefore is hit cover instead. In, yeah, absolutely. For cover, I think it's good. Uh, line of sight, I think it's best just to have the GM just say yes or no and forget what the models show because um, there are other factors you can't really model in. Yeah, that's quite true. I think that miniatures make area of effect attacks more effective. So, you know, whether it's grenades or psychic powers, you know, I mean, so many times I've seen you know, players are fighting five bad guys and they say, can I throw a grenade and get all five? And I sort of think, well, no, the bad guys don't all just bunch up ready for a grenade. You know, they spread out a bit. I'll say, okay, maybe you can sort of get two. And sometimes the players look at me like they've been hard done by. So, if you've got miniatures on the table and you know the blast radius of your grenades, you can sort of better plan when to use their effect attacks. Uh, You know, you can try and drive enemies into environments that are more effective for the flamer in your group, for example. Uh, so I think that having those miniatures on the board really helps those sorts of attacks. Yeah, I, I, I agree with that. I think um, for grenades, definitely. Um, because that is a common thing. People going, oh, well, I've got a grenade which can cover five meters. That should hit five guys. Well, if you all, if five guys standing within a meter of each other, that's pretty friendly. Yes, that's it. Not 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 uh, consistent with actual battlefield tactics. Not really, no. No, uh, and I suppose the other main benefit I thought, and this is sort of to me is one of the most important ones, is that you know all of us have worked hard to to collect these miniatures, to to paint them. You know, you want to show them off. You, you want to have the ability to get these figures out, uh, especially for for me because I mean I played a, for a long time or still play a witch hunter's army, so I have all the various Inquisitor and Acolyte figures uh, and they're great for things like Dark Heresy likewise as a Marine player uh, where they're painted as Marines not as, as Death Watch um, I can still utilise Marines for, for Death Watch play so you know when you've done a lot of work on these figures and you don't play the war game so much anymore using miniatures in the, the RPG is a good way to get them out and still see use from them yeah. and Mike does that mean that uh, when you run games you're going to start throwing lots of Tyranids at us? Well it's Tyranids, Nurgle, or Slanesh, really, I suppose, from my point of view, because they're the three armies I collect. Which does lead into one of the disadvantages of miniatures, doesn't it? Okay, which being which... You actually have to have the models there, otherwise the, the whole immersion aspect you're aiming for kind of falls flat when the first time you run into a group of players, uh, your characters run into a group of enemies, and then you go, okay, there's five cultists here, unfortunately I don't have any cultists, so just pretend that this uh, termagant is actually a human cultist. Yeah, I mean, I, I saw this all the time with, um, when I, I used to play a lot of fourth ed Dungeons and Dragons, we used to go to a, a monthly sort of game group which would run the RPGA uh, Living Forgotten Realms materials as such, and they're all pre-published adventures with preset enemies and the people running the games would use whatever miniatures they had in their bag, you know, so often there was like, oh, that skeleton's actually a human guard, you know, oh, that dog is actually a dire wolf or something, you know, or something even more obscure than that. Yeah. Uh, and so when you're going for that immersive quality, having things that don't match what they're supposed to be can break that immersion. Mike, one of your classic stories is sort of, one of the reasons that, that Games Workshop has never really sort of supported or has stopped supporting conventions in Australia historically and sort of focused on their own things is that many years ago, one of the, the GW guys here went to a convention to participate and he took his army along and, you know, he went, he got into a battle against a, a kid playing on the other side, he's put his army out and the kids put a 
milk carton on the table and said, oh, that's actually a, a, a Land Raider. Yes. Because I, I couldn't afford a Land Raider miniature. And the guy from GW is just like, well, this is just... So they're just excusing, you know, utilising junk as whatever it wants to be. You know, I, I don't want to be a part of this. He packed up his miniatures and left. So, you know, if you're going to have these figures, great. If you don't have these figures, it can be immersion breaking. And it can mean that if I've got a whole bunch of Chaos Cultists as figures, then potentially my players are going to keep running into Chaos Cultists because that's what I can represent. Yes. Also, in terms of appearances, something I was thinking about was players can sometimes play tactically against what they see on the board rather than what they know is there. So if I put a really impressive looking figure on the board, then sometimes players will go, that looks tough, I've got to shoot that. Even though it may not match the exact description of what it's supposed to be representing. So... Uh, another example here, I'll go back to 4th Ed D&D and these RPGA days. Uh, I used to uh, sometimes run some of these games and because there was a local uh, gaming shop near where I lived that would actually sell the D&D miniatures individually, they'd break open the packs and sell them individually, sometimes quite expensively if they were rare ones, but I, if I got a module the week before I was going to be running it, I would actually go through, work out what I needed to be able to represent everything, go to the shop and buy those figures. And in one game I was running, there was a, a red rage drake. Was it? So it's sort of like a, a smaller version of a dragon. And I didn't have the figure, so I went and bought the figure. And it was a really nice-looking figure. So a large base, 2x2 two two square base. Just a very nice-looking sort of dragon-like model. And the the fight involved this rage drake and a few other sort of NPCs or a few other uh, villains. And as soon as I put the rage drake on the table... The whole group said, wow, that looks really tough. Okay, everybody first round of combat, we're on that thing. And before I got to do a single thing with it, it was dead because every single character went, that looks so bad, I've got to attack that thing first. Yes. And yeah, yes, it was a, a worse opponent than the other, or the human opponents, but you know, potentially the, the combined humans were as dangerous as the Rage Drake, but the group tactically focused on it because of what they thought of the miniature. So the miniature itself can sometimes skew the group's activities. I mean, what do you think of that one, Mike? It's a bit of an odd one. No, no, it, it, it's... I agree with it because it happens a lot in the in the tabletop um, war game as well, especially as a Tyranid player. A lot of times people will look at the Carnifex and go, ah, oh, I have to kill that first round, and they'll throw everything at it and completely ignore a unit of Gene Sealers, which can do vastly more damage in combat than a single Carnifex can. And they'll lose several units because of it. Yeah, that's quite true. So it's just a it's a natural effect, I suppose. And I consider that it would probably happen in real warfare against aliens as well. The, the bigger, scarier ones would get shot at first, regardless of if they were actually dangerous. So yeah, but I mean, as you said before, sometimes the figure you put on the board may not be the exactly it may not be exactly the same as you know what it's supposed to be. Oh, in in those cases, it can have that. It can have a detrimental effect, yes. But you know, as a GM, play with it, use it. If yeah, I mean, I, I've certainly seen times when a person's put down eight gene stealer figures, and one's had a yellow dot on it, and they've said, "Oh, the yellow dot is actually a patriarch." Now, a gene stealer patriarch, from a character point of view, looks a lot more threatening than a regular gene stealer. But all the players saw was eight gene stealers, one with a yellow dot. Yes. Yeah, in situations like that, yeah. I mean, you've, you've got to be careful how you use this sort of thing. Um, it's 
because of the immersion aspect and also because sometimes players can go well you know I, I didn't know that guy had a grenade launcher because you've put down four cultists all of them with las guns so you know just, just make it clear to, uh, to the players that you know the models aren't exact representations of exactly how these guys look and you'll be alright I reckon that's true alright so another potential drawback is that uh, we mentioned before, sometimes you want to use scenery. So if you have some nice-looking, painted, built model scenery, fantastic. That can really add to the game. But chances are you've only got so much. So I have model scenery here. Most of my scenery is the Imperial buildings that were put out by Games Workshop. So if I utilize those every time I want to do a battle, then I have to contrive circumstances that players are constantly fighting in built-up areas because I don't have a lot of hills slash trees slash rivers. I've got mainly buildings. So I think that that can sometimes lead to sameish battles. You know, you, 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 people saying, oh, not another battle inside a factory, or not another battle inside a city, because we always have that. You know, and the only other option to that is to use substitute props. So, you know, okay, I want this to be, um, you know, a, a, a copse of trees... So, therefore, I'm going to use tissue paper to represent trees, or and you're back to that whole milk carton land raider situation again. Indeed, yeah, and it can cause problems as well when players start going, ah, oh, well, you know, this model of a building you've put out has a heavy bolter turret mount. I want to use that. It's like, there isn't one there, it's just a model. It's just a model. That's it. I also think that when it comes to miniatures, there can be a potential for players to to game the system you know as someone who's played 40k so especially when who's played marines in 40k for a long time will have a pretty good idea about what 24 inches is because they're used to shooting their guns over that distance so you know the classic thing is to say okay well i get to just close enough that i can hit but far enough away that it's going to take you a couple of rounds to get your termagants into melee combat for example and because you can't pre-measure distances in, in the war game, people have sort of learned to compensate by sort of figuring out how to work out what that distance is. And I think that those people could use those same skills in the miniatures game, or in the, sorry, in the, in the role-playing game, to game the system, you know, sit just out of range, you know, um, just out of charging distance. Things that conceptually you can't put a character sort of thought around. They just manage to just get it right because they know how to play war games. Yeah. Uh, and this one, next one I thought wrote down, actually we'll mention a bit more in our book review as well, but of course one of the big systems of Death Watch is hordes. This is the first game that introduced hordes to the setting. And how do you put hordes in a miniatures game? You know, if your horde represents 100 termagants, you may have 100 termagant models, I don't know, Mike, do you? You have that many? Yeah. Okay, well, let's just say you don't. Okay. <laughs> uh, how are you going to put or represent that on the board as well. Um, yeah, I mean, that is covered in, in the, the book we're um, reviewing. It does mention a little bit about that. And yes, it is a, it is a tricky issue. Um, it's, you can't really just put down one model and say that represents 500 guys. It's, again, immersion breaking. You, you're trying to use the models to build extra immersion. And there are certainly plenty of ways that you can break the immersion with models as well. Yeah, that's quite true. Um, and the last thing I put down here as a potential drawback is that sometimes your play area just isn't big enough. You know, so, I mean, this comes back to your role-playing preference, but it's been a long time 
for me since I sat down and played a role-playing game at a dining room table. You know, these days I tend to do most of my gaming in the lounge room around a coffee table because we don't need to have maps out or figures out all the time. And when we want to bring those features in, we say, okay, well, I've got a three-foot by two-foot coffee table. There's only so much I can do. And suddenly I've got a character which has got a 150-meter range weapon saying I want to hang back out of sight and I just can't put them on the table. So unless you've got a decent play size or you know everybody owns a Sultan gaming table, you may run into situations where there's not enough room to, to actually represent the, the combat area. Yes, especially if you are fighting against a horde because um, it, models take up space. They certainly do. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so let's talk about some considerations when you want to use miniatures. What are some things that you can do to make it easier to, to actually use miniatures? The first thing I thought of is you've got to have a scale. You know, you've got to know that you know, this real-life distance represents this much in-game distance. And I've certainly found with, with these RPGs, which use a, a metric system of meters, uh, but they're still based on the standard exaggerated 25mm uh, Weimar figures, it's easiest to just do one meter equals one inch. I mean, Mike, what do you think of that one? Is, is that what you'd use as well? Or? Yes, absolutely. As you mentioned, it'll cause some problems when people start pulling out their long lasses and start blasting at people, you know... 300 meters away but for the majority of combat the game system itself doesn't lend itself to long range weapons so one meter one inch should be okay yeah I think it's consistent with the size of the physical figures as well yes yeah so therefore if you've got a uh, character with a four meter move just get out your typical games workshop red ruler or your tape measure or whatever else you might use that's got inches on it and just measure out four inches and that's probably the, the best way to do it in a sort of a, a freeform way. Another option potentially, and this has really come from my days of playing D&D, is you can buy these uh, roll-up, dry erasable one-inch grid sheets. So uh, similar to your standard you know, mapping grid from Dungeons & Dragons, this one is a, a one-inch uh, square, and yeah, it's like poster size. You roll it out, it's laminated, you can just draw on it with a dry erase marker, and when you finish, just wipe it off. So I think some of the advantages of these things is they allow you to draw on terrain that you uh, that you don't have figures for. So you can literally just draw an area and mark out this is an area of rubble or, or trees or whatever else, and therefore that's difficult terrain. Uh, you can represent the size of hordes potentially. You can tr- like rather than having figures for the horde because it's a a more of a sort of conceptual thing. You can literally just draw the size of the horde on there, so players know when they're in base to base contact with the horde for melee attacks. Uh, even if you've got some rather unusual enemy that you don't have a figure for, so you know you want to have a, a, a dreadnought or, or some other larger thing, or a tank, for example, uh, they can certainly be drawn on as well. Uh, so there's some, some quality things there. But it does make it hard to represent levels of terrain. So if you've got a building that's got multiple tiers, having it drawn as a single 2D uh, image on the map doesn't really work. I have seen people do quite well by taking... Uh, the the clear dice set covers and putting those on the, the table with the miniature on top of that to represent the miniature being at a higher level of the battlefield. And the good thing there is because they're hollow, you can put them over other figures. But uh, that, that's one consideration. But uh, certainly have a look at those those uh, dry erase sheets because they when you don't have the, the things you want at hand to represent it, you can 
get halfway there with these boards as well. And if you're a good artist, you know, if you can draw, you know, good buildings, good vehicles, whatever, then the immersion isn't lost on it. You know, yes, there is no 3D terrain that you for what you've drawn, but if you're a good artist, you can potentially make up for that as well. Yeah. Uh, now, if you are going to use miniatures, it may be worth your while to not run every single battle as a miniatures conflict. Because there is a setup time and a pack up time. Uh, it do, they do tend to be slightly longer fights because people spend more time walking around, looking at the battlefield, trying to formulate their plans, measuring out distances. It, it does slow the game down to a degree. So maybe if you do want to do miniatures battles, focus on the key conflicts as part of the game, like you know the the, the fight with the big bad guy at the end, uh, or some other climactic battle. Certainly, when we ran one of the uh, the modules that was produced for Death Watch when it was first coming out, the sound modules, there's a big scene in that where the Marines are defending a spaceport from a, a Tyranid horde or multiple Tyranid hordes, and it was never going to be something you could do in miniatures because you're talking about something the size of an entire spaceport with hordes arriving multiple directions. But we still drew it on a bit of paper and, and drew the basic layout of the terrain and marked on the paper where every single character was and where the hordes are coming from. And having that sort of visual connection really did help as well. Uh, so, you know, when you've got those big climactic scenes, that's potentially a good time to use miniatures. I'd agree with that. I mean, you... Every fight against a thug in a bar doesn't need a map and diagrams and everything else. Yeah. Uh, and the last thing is, we mentioned before, sometimes you're going to get combatants that have long-range weapons, long lasers or uh, stalker bolters, for example. Allow them to be off the board. You know, if, if, the, if what is in the scope of the combat right now is 50 square metres and that person's 300 metres away, just don't put the figure on the board. Say, you're off in that direction sniping because until someone runs over to them to try and attack them they don't need to be represented anyway you know a person can still shoot back at them if they've got a weapon that's in range uh, they're not part of the the ebb and flow of the battle they're not dashing around between cover they're simply somewhere taking pot shots so allow that person whether it's a PC or an NPC to be off the board and still engage are there any other tips Mike you can think of when it comes to putting miniatures into the game um, I don't think so. I think, really, you've just got to remember that you are doing it to build immersion. And if you, you you decide that what you've got on hand isn't going to build immersion, for whatever reason, you haven't got the right terrain, you haven't got the right models, um, you just don't like the look of the stuff you've got, don't do it. Um, you don't have to do it, but it, it can help. Yeah. I, I think, Mike, you've certainly got an advantage there as being a Tyranids player, because... When it comes to Death Watch, in the setting of Death Watch, in the Jericho Reach, the Tyranids are one of the uh, the forces that the Marines will encounter. And of course, usually Tyranids have much larger numbers. So if you've got the 100 Termigants like you've got, and you put those on a board in a, in a miniatures combat, it's really going to give the players a sense of scale as to how overwhelmed they are in terms of just sheer numbers. Yes. And, and therefore, when they overcome that, that particular threat, it's more of a victory to their mind as well. Indeed, yeah. I mean, because th- that is one of the drawbacks of hordes themselves, is that it is just a number. People don't really go, oh, well, a 50-magnitude horde, how many guys actually is that? But if you put them out and physically show them, that it, it does give an advantage. 
Yeah, I mean, one of the things I want to talk about in a future episode is running horror games, but certainly many years ago at a convention, I ran a, a game based on the Aliens franchise. And so the the player characters were Marines and they were in a ship that was over, overwhelmed by aliens. And one thing I want to do there was ne- I never said to a person, roll to hit, roll damage. And they say, okay, you killed two aliens. I always made it that if they were shooting aliens, aliens were constantly dying, but aliens were constantly replacing the ones that were killed because I didn't want players to get in their head that they can do X much damage and an alien has Y much health. Therefore, I can kill... 30 aliens before I'm out of ammunition. I didn't want them to sort of rationalize this, you know, immeasurable horde of horror down to a set of basic numbers. So, you know, hordes are good in that respect in that they can sort of de-quantify the, the, you know, you don't have to worry about how many things there, it just keeps coming at you. And you don't have to tell the person how many points of health it's got left, you know. They'll start to pick up when the magnitude drops because you roll less damage dice and you roll less uh, attacks potentially. But I think that you know, hordes are one of those odd ones where you can actually create this sense of unknown scale. Yes. All right, so that's probably done our discussion on miniatures. Why don't we jump into our career discussion? Yeah, let's do that. All subjects report to the administrator for career assignment. All right, for our career discussion today, we're going to be talking about the Assault Marine. So I think the Assault Marine is one of the sort of the, the classic examples of, you know, everyone knows the Tactical Marine the Devastator and the Assault Marine. And the other specialties in Death Watch are sort of more ancillary classes, but I think this is one of the sort of those iconic ones. Uh, and I think it's important to sort of get it right as well. So let's start off by talking about the role of the Assault Marine within the Adeptus Astartes. So not specifically uh, Death Watch, just the Astartes themselves. If you're looking at a Codex chapter, normally the way it works is a, 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 a new Marine will start off as a Scout, once they have proved themselves as a scout, they will spend some time as a devastator. And then once they are used to uh, fighting in the face of the foe as a devastator, they'll then be transferred to become an assault marine. Uh, and eventually assault marines then become tactical marines as well because they've now got that scope of all areas of the battle, basically, to be able to tactically assess. Now, there are certainly going to be marines who have completed all the doctrines and choose to return to the assault doctrine because it sort of fit their style the best. But other marines are simply simply they're just assault marines on the path from devastator to tactical marine. I think that when you say assault marine, the first thing that jumps to people's mind is the jump pack close combat marine. That, that that's what you know an assault marine is called in the in the scope of the tabletop rules uh, or the war game rules. Uh, but essentially, the marines that are currently within the assault doctrine are the same marines who also run the attack bikes or the bikes in general, uh, the land speeders, potentially even the drop pod deployments. So that these are basically your fast attack marines. Uh, it's not just about close combat. The assault doctrine is about um, mobility, is about deployment, and close-in versatility. Does that sort of fit with your thoughts? I think that's correct, yeah. I, I mean, they're not just run up to the enemy and start hacking with a sword. There's certainly a lot more to it than that. Especially when you do consider the bikes, jet bikes, they're generally piloted in the um, codex chapters by assault marines. Yeah, I mean it's one of the I don't want to say mistakes, but one of the things I noticed about the Death Watch RPG is that, I mean, every so every marine gets uh, drive ground as a skill. 
Yes. And of course, Assault Marines get pilot personal, but Assault Marines through their eight ranks don't get any more driving or piloting skills. So I think that the, the RPG has focused on the close combat jump jump pack marine, but it's worth noting as a from a fluff point of view that the Assault Doctrine also covers you know bike riders, land speeder drivers, drop bomb marines, etc. And I suppose the other sort of key thing about the Assault Marine, one thing that gets sort of glossed over, is that one of their key combat roles is deploying frontline munitions. So the classic example is the melter bomb. You know, if your marine army is up against a, a chaos dreadnought or a, a large tank or something else which is heavily armoured uh, and you, you can't get shots onto it because your devastators are dead or pinned down or whatever it might be, uh, getting an assault in there with a melter bomb is a good way to take that, that hardware out. So their additional mobility and versatility allows them to better deploy frontline munitions. So that's sort of what I've seen as the the key roles of the assault marine within the Adeptus Astartes. And to the most extent, that pretty much fits in with the Death Watch kill team as well. When it comes to their role within Death Watch, they're fulfilling those same purposes. One question you probably have to ask yourself as a player of an assault marine in Death Watch is, is my marine someone who has come to the assault marine doctrine from progressing through the ranks? Or is he a Marine who has completed all the various doctrines and has returned to Assault Marine because it's what he favours the most? And I'd say in, in most Death Watch cases, the latter would be the most common because Death Watch Marines are men who have distinguished themselves in their chapters. Uh, they're usually long-serving Marines, and so therefore it would be reasonable to expect they have gone through all of the doctrines. Would you say that's true? I'd agree with that. I mean, it makes a lot more sense rather than have someone who hasn't even completed their tactical marine training becoming a member of Death Watch though it can happen um, I just think that the players probably have to come up with an exceptionally good reason why good backstory yeah. and I suppose one other thing in Death Watch is that, that Death Watch marines get a much greater chance of access to relics uh, especially in the Jericho Reach with the, with the Omega Vault and it may be simply observation, but I've certainly seen that the majority of described marine relics in 40k are close combat weapons. Yes. You know, and there are certainly relic heavy bolters and you know relic stalker bolters and whatever else, but there are a lot of relic thunder hammers and power swords and lightning claws, everything else. I think that as an assault marine. In Death Watch, you're going to have the greatest chance to get your hands on some of the most powerful items that the Astartes have to offer. I'd agree with that. Um, I think that, you know, relics certainly play their place, and I think that Assault Marines are going to get their, the majority of the, uh, the lion's share. Yeah, I mean, I think we'll talk about more on that in our discussion talk anyway, but yeah. something to consider with your, with your Death Watch Assault Marine as well. Yeah. All right, so when it comes to actually building your Assault Marine, let's start off with the basics of characteristics. So, probably goes without saying, weapon skill. Yes. You know, you're, you're a close combatant, weapon skill is what you're going to want to go from. Uh, strength is going to be a big one, because that affects how much damage you actually do with those melee weapons. Some people would say toughness, but I would probably prefer to go with agility, because t- the ability to wear continual hits, when you're up against creatures like Tyranids in combat where they've got lots of attacks, you know, 
getting hit a lot and just taking not much damage is nowhere near as good as just not being hit in the first place. So I think that if I was building an Assault Marine, I would focus on agility over toughness. I agree with that. Um, mainly because if, you know, if a combat starts off and a Carnifex comes rumbling out, doesn't matter how high your toughness is, you're probably not going to last very long if you're just trying to wear the blows. Uh, whereas you can avoid it altogether. And the only other option would be to simply not engage it as the assault marine, and that isn't really very thematic. Yeah, wh- why are they there if that's the case? Exactly. So I, yeah. I think it, I, I'd go with agility over toughness as well. And the last one I thought was uh, perception, I thought, for an assault marine. And it is one of the cheaper ones in their build package as well, but I think that when you're talking about a person who is in the absolute thick of combat, being able to assess your immediate environment, maintain... Uh, locational awareness and respond to changes in the, in the immediate battlefield are very important to an assault marine. So I think that even if, you know, from a, from a rules point of view, there's not a lot that goes off of it, I think that from a fluff point of view, perception is a good one for an assault marine. I agree with that. I think there's lots of good reasons to take decent perception as an assault marine. Um, one of the ones people probably don't think of too often is snipers. Uh, if you can pick out where the sniper is, you're equipped with a jump pack, you can get there you know, regardless of what level of a building they're on, you can get there quick enough to take them out in close combat. That's it. Now, I'd just like to point out with characteristics, you, you mentioned weapon skill and strength, but you can, if you want to be a pistol specialist, um, go for just ballistic skill and forget the weapon skill and strength. Though that would probably end up being a very different assault marine. Um, probably fit more for a Dark Angel style of play. That's it. I mean, I think the classic assault marine is the one one close combat weapon, one one range weapon. You know, so the the power sword and bolt pistol, or yeah. the chain sword and plasma pistol, that sort of thing. Well, yes, you do get the guys with two lightning claws, or you know, your thunder hammer and, and storm shield. I think that the the archetypal assault marine, especially at a low rank where you can't get some of the more unusual gear, is going to be you know one sword one bolt pistol or something similar to that. Yeah, chainsaw and bolt pistol is going to be your, your starting bread and butter, I think. That's it. So, ballistic skill is, you know, every Marine needs a bit of ballistic skill because, at the end of the day, that's their primary combat doctrine is range, presumably. But, uh, you know, I just thought weapon skill was probably the, the more important one there for a it's Oh, I'm certainly not saying it's not important. It's not more important. I'm just saying that you can if you want play the cypher style character who is two pistols quite true and it certainly does fit and just to step back a step as well when we mentioned agility too one thing that you can also use agility for is piloting yes uh, for, or, and driving too so yeah that does if you want to go that sort of that vehicle path assault right? even though the rules don't well there are ways to do it as well and we'll talk about that when it comes to the alternate career ranks as well but yeah. that's something to consider as well yes when it comes to talents um I'm not going to go into heaps of detail here because there are a lot of melee talents. Yes. You know, blade Master, Lightning Attack, um, all these sort of things. You, you, at the end of the day, if it enhances close combat, it is worth considering for this for this uh, for this career. And all you need to do is look at the uh, the talents available to the career through its uh, through its progression path. But it's pretty straightforward, I think. Yeah, I'd agree with that. There's nothing in, in particular you'd want to call out as unusual as a talent? Um, not really. I think it's probably a good idea to try and work your way towards some of the talents like um, Crushing Blow and uh, Lightning Attack uh, in particular. 
but you know there's no rush and there's no best way to do the talents that's it alright so let's look at what might be some good chapter selections for an assault marine and, and we covered it in our last Deathwatch episode you should never pick a chapter you don't want to play because it works better with your class in our opinion you know the, I think that that fluff trumps rules but you know potentially you may want to you may be undecided about a, a, a chapter in which case you know here are some sort of th- our thoughts on which chapters potentially make good assault marines uh, so starting off with the you know your 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 first founding chapters I thought that uh, Black Templars from the Death Watch book they have a weapon skill focus and I think that their sort of uh, their fervor in combat will, would suit the assault marine well uh, Blood Angels, uh, from, once again from Death Watch, you know, in weapon skill and agility focus. You really, I mean, you can't get a more typical assault marine than a Blood Angels assault marine. I think you know the whole red thirst just fits in well with the with the assault doctrine. So I think this is sort of the if you if you're unsure and undecided, this is probably the best just go to option. Yep. But uh, yeah, certainly it's it's a, a, a typical one. Also from Death Watch, uh, you mentioned it before. Uh, Dark Angels straight away don't look like a good option for an Assault Marine because they get Ballistic Skill and Intelligence as their stat bonuses. But the one advantage of Dark Angels is that opens up the Ravenwing Advanced Speciality. So, or the Ravenwing Veterans. So if you do want to go in that path of a of a, a bike rider or something like that, then that is a good way to, to open up that particular uh, style of play. Yes. Which you could also do from a Tactical Marine as well, but the option is there anyway. Yeah. Uh, also from first founding, uh, the Raven Guard, uh, which are another sort of typical uh, close combat doctrine sort of uh, chapter with the with the you know, sort of typical dual lightning claws. They get the agility and perception focus as well, so I think they're a good assault marine choice. And you can't go past the white scars. You know, when, when it comes to your bikes and uh, land speeders, you know, the, the the white scars are probably the most versatile or uh, agile of the, the, the assault base marines as well so they get the agility focus uh, and it's just it, it suits with their whole combat doctrine of the chapter yeah uh, looking at some of the uh, subsequent founding chapters a few I picked out uh, the marines errant from one of the chapter with an agility and strength focus uh, the flesh terrors if that's the sort of game you want to play uh, with a weapon skill agility focus uh, Howling Griffins, also from one of the chapter, weapon skill focus. Uh, the Raptors, from one of the chapter, have agility perception focus. Uh, the Carcaridons, once again, weapon skill focus. Doom Eagles, a good choice. They get the agility focus and also the Death from Above talent. Yep. So that fits quite well with the Assault Doctrine. Uh, and the last one was the Invaders, who get both the weapon skill and agility focus, but also pick up Hatred Eldar. So if you know that you're... GM is going to give you a you know a, a campaign against Eldar. The invaders might be a good choice for a, a chapter for your assault marine. And even if they're not hating Eldar, is never a bad thing. That's it. And, and I will say one thing here that I, I'll probably say in every single Death Watch campaign: Ultramarines and the Sept chapters get any two stats of choice. So you know you can make anything work with an Ultramarine basically if you want to go playing down the middle you know I'm an ultra room player in the in the war game so I'll obviously support them but you know I don't need to say for every single um, speciality that ultramarines can be made to w- made to suit it as well so yes yep. 
So, you've got your assault marine. You've you know gotten past your your first rank. Let's look at a couple of potential advanced specialities you might consider for an assault marine. I've picked out a few here that I thought sort of matched with the style of the assault marine. First was Death Watch Chaptain, uh, sorry, champ, Champion from uh, Rites of Battle. Yeah. So I think they have a 40 weapon skill entry requirement. So uh, they're obviously weapon skill focused. You're going to have a greater opportunity to access relic weapons as well. So uh, this is you know a, a, a rather generic path towards a, a higher ranked assault marine. Uh, all the rest have some form of... Um, uh, link to a particular uh, to a particular chapter. Then, so I mentioned before, the Ravenwing veteran uh, would fit with that sort of vehicle doctrine. Yep. Uh, the Furioso Dreadnought. You know, if if you're allow if your GM allows Dreadnoughts in the game, you know, we suggested before that it might be one that's worth being for an NPC. But you know, your, your Blood Angel Assault Marine, when they die, may become a Furioso Dreadnought. Uh, the Ultramarines Honor Guard. Uh, I, I thought that. Uh, once again, they have a weapon skill focus there, and and they've sort of got that, uh, you know, the, the the gold armor or the gold gold plated armor and such that that sort of, you know, honourable warrior style that fits with the the close combat path. The Tempest Blade, which is specifically from um, Storm Wardens. The Storm Wardens. That's it. From uh, that, that's from also from one of the chapter, and also the Sword Brother from the uh, the Black Templars. Once again, with a weapon skill fifty plus entry requirement. So. Uh, they're another good option for your for your assault marine. So, Mike, uh, any thoughts on how you might play an assault marine? Um, I think the important thing to remember about playing an assault marine is they're not just going to run into every single combat straight away, run in front of all their friends, you know, fr- run in front of all the rest of the squad, break up lines of fire, and just be mindless berserkers. Um, Unless they're a fresh terror. Well maybe if they're a flesh terror or a, a blood angel under the red thirst but leaving that aside generally speaking most of the time you should always consider tactical considerations and not just run straight into combat don't be just the sort of person who's just going to say oh enemy i charge regardless of what's going on around you um because those sorts of marines probably wouldn't have lasted long enough to get into death watch i mean Potentially, you could say that you're playing a, a marine who has only just entered the assault marine doctrine as part of their regular training and may have distinguished themselves through some deed in order to get the death watch entry. Uh, in which case, you may play the slightly more hot-headed marine yep. because you're still sort of you know untested in this close combat arena. But I'd say the average uh, assault marine in in death watch is going to be more level-headed about their their close in combat. Yes. Yes. Alright, so I think we've pretty much covered the Assault Marine. I think so, yep. Why don't we move into our review section? Yes. My lord, the information you requested is now available for your review. So for today's review section, we're going to be doing a review of Mark of the Xenos. And for the first time in a while, Mike has read the book cover to cover, and I've only had the opportunity in the last couple of weeks to skim it over. So Mike, I'm going to let you take the lead on this particular review. Yes. Do you want to, uh, to jump straight into it? Yeah, let's just get started. Um, first up, don't let the title confuse you too much. It's called Mark of the Xenos. It does include radicals, heretics, humans, forces of chaos as well. Um, it's 
harkens back to the old style D&D books of the monster manuals and it's fairly similar actually to the modern codexes that they put together for the armies as well. So let's get started into the into the chapters themselves. Just to expand on that, you, you, from what I understand, you've pretty much got a, a page of fluff and then a bit of rules uh, and then some plot hooks as well. So that, 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 I think that's where the, the correlation between the the codex that monster manuals come from, would you say? Yes, yeah, definitely. So, um, starting off, starts off with a simple introduction, just telling you what's actually in the book, and it gives you some ideas also about uh, how to modify the enemies as they're presented here, just so you can add your own flavour to them. But, you know, it's pretty much the same as it says at the start of every single one of these types of books. Your chapter one is the alien threat, so the actual Xenos. And they've broken it up into sections related to the alien race in particular. So it starts off with the Tau, who I always found a little bit odd to be put into this setting. But they've made it work, but I still probably wouldn't use them, just because I'm not a huge fan of the Tau. So they go through an introduction into what the Tau Empire is, what they actually do, a few rules for their weapons, and then it goes into actual enemy units. So you've got your broadside battle suits, a particular commander, who's your uh, master, so if you want to use him for the general of the enemy army, and then it goes into things like ethereals, crew, all that sort of stuff. Now, with this book, the way they've done it, as James mentioned, is they've put together a page full of descriptive text and fluff about what this unit actually is, then a bit of rules section together, and then a whole bunch of uh, adventure seeds. And the adventure seeds really is the core of this book. The rules themselves and the fluff, it's all nice, but the adventure seeds are what give this book some actual longevity. So um, it's worthwhile looking through those. Uh, After all your Tau stuff, they then go into the Tyranids. Um, again, what Tyranids are, a bit of fluff about uh, Tyranid weapons and some stats for them, Tyranid psychic powers and ways to use them, and then it goes through the the standard sort of monsters which aren't covered in the core book. So Carnifex, um, Gargoyles, Lictors, Pure Strain Gene Stealers, that sort of thing. And again, they've included a Master, who is the Dargon Overlord, who's a nice uh, put-together hive tyrant with some special abilities. And again, a whole bunch of plot hooks for each individual one of these types of creatures. So there's plenty of lifespan in this book for Tyranids. So, Mike, as a Tyranid player, do you think they've done a good job of capturing the, the Tyranid forces in this particular book? Not just in the fluff, but turning you know the war game figure into a, re- a realistic representation in the RPG? I think so, yeah. Um... I think it's funny, again, that once again they've released another book with another set of rules for pure strange gene stealers, and once again they're completely different to all the previous versions of pure strange gene stealers. So for Dark Heresy, eventually they released it in, um, I think they released it in the Xenos book for that. What was that called? Um, Creature Anathema. Yep, Creature's Anathema, different rule set. Uh, They released it for Rogue Trader, different rule set. Released it now for... Death Watch, different rule set again. And I think it's a little bit odd, but there are some slight rule changes between each book. 
and there is a different power level between each book as between each game as well and it feels like they've sort of just upped them a little bit to always remain a good challenge i think one of the things you can say as a saving grace is that gene stealers as a creature probably have the most scope for variance within the tyranids you know that they are a creature which effectively reproduces through you know through other 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 aliens you know uh almost the same way that different factors of crute can have different styles based upon what they eat i imagine you could have different gene stealer styles based upon what they've bred what they've what they've bred with what they've infiltrated you know so the sort of gene stealers you might encounter deep within the imperium where they've been through several generations of you know gene stealer cults on various hive worlds may be quite different from the gene stealers you would see that are attacking you know space with a with a hive fleet that yeah. have had no interaction with, you know, humans before now. Oh, I think that's fair to say. Um, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, I remember back in the day where there was an old white dwarf where they had um, the rules for gene steel of orc hybrids back before orcs were reproduced by spores. So, you know, there is plenty of scope there for gene stealers in that sort of regard, I suppose, yes. And even further back when they had lamprey-like mouths rather than their current sort of design. Yes. Yeah, I mean, they've definitely changed a lot of the canon. Um, so I think it's fair to say that this book relate, relates mostly to the most current version of what things are. So after your Tyranids, we go into Orcs. They've got the, the standard traits for Orcs, a bit of information about Orcs, Orc teeth, Orc weapons, all that sort of thing. Um, some details for if you want to use Orc boys and Mega Knobs and War Bosses. And again, they've included a Master level adversary if you want someone to sort of run an entire campaign based around then after that we go into other xenos which are a collection of random monsters from around the galaxy so we've got things in there like um brule parasites uh loxital mercenaries who originally appeared in the uh, first rogue trader game they've uh, brought some of these things back again all right, I, I thought this is mainly... I mean, I, I, I think at least a couple of these are brand new to the setting, aren't they? So Yes. Um, this, this was their first chance to really introduce new fluff for the setting. Yes, yeah, indeed. And uh, some of them are very well put together, and some of them are going to be very dangerous, especially because they are created specifically for this setting. It does give GMs who have well-versed players, who know a lot about the setting... Um, a chance to go, well, what the hell is that? All right. Okay, so uh, uh, that ends off the um, Xenos section. And that's basically half the book, isn't it? So even though it does cover the things, Xenos make up the the vast majority of it. Yeah, Xenos make up a good 50% of the book. So then after that, it goes into Radicals and Heretics. Again, they give you a, a, a master to start off with, who's an Inquisitor model. Well put together again. A bit more detail in this one than some of the other previous master level bad guys, mainly because I suppose he is human, so they can go a bit more into how he interacts in the Imperium and how you're going to have to deal with him in that regard, because it it does change it from a direct physical combat, because, you know, Tyranids aren't exactly going to be, you know, a Hive Tyrant isn't exactly going to be carefully manipulating the strings behind the backs of uh, planetary governors and infiltrating places. A Lictor might, but a Hive Tyrant generally won't be, whereas this Inquisitor-type can do. 
And they've continued that along with um, Cardinals, um, Robots. Yeah, I mean, certainly this this is one of my favourite parts of the book because some of the opponents here are not your typical get into a fight and kill it with, with bolter shells. Sort of. Oh, ab- I, I, absolutely. I really like the, uh, the irradial cogitator. You know, basically an evil supercomputer. Yes. So, you know, if you, when you're in the room with it, you know, it's an immobile object that's easy to destroy. But, but it's, it's not a... Yeah. It's getting in the room with it in the first place. That's the sort of the focus of the campaign. Yes, or the um, Spire Slayer, which is mentioned in there, which is at its most powerful, easily more than a match for an entire kill team. But it creates... It, it's built around the concept of there's a timer on it and you're trying to race the clock to destroy this thing before it powers up fully. And I, th- I think it's a well-put-together chapter, actually, Radicals and Heretics. Um, again, lots of plot hooks. You won't find too many surprises here, I think, it, really, in, in the regards of what the creatures actually do and what the guys can actually do. But, yeah, well put together. And right. finally, Forces of Chaos, complete, starting off with uh, the Greater Demons. So your Bloodthirsters, Great Unclean Ones, Keeper of Secrets, Lord of Change... Again, these are all levels of opponents for when the characters have reached that sort of tier of play. They're sort of final adventure level opponents. I mean, I almost thought it was a bit disappointing to to give such powerful things in the setting, you know, role play stats to a degree. I mean, some of them just have absolutely ridiculous level of wounds. Yeah. I think the biggest one is the um, the great unclean one with two hundred and seventy odd wounds. Yeah, you know, that that would just be, you know, you you, sh- you shouldn't be shooting someone with that many wounds, you know. So, um, I, I'll I'll draw another analogy back to uh, days when I used to work as a bodyguard, and I um I was working with somebody who uh, we we collected pistols one day for a job, and they gave us the the firearm plus a spare magazine, and he said, "Well, can I have some more?" And uh, the issuer said, "Look, if if you need to shoot it more than more than twenty times, you shouldn't be shooting at it." So uh, I think that yeah, these creatures sort of... You, you shouldn't see Marines in a stand-up fight against a greater demon. It should be more complex than just, you know, who, who, can, who can wear the most damage. I have to agree with that. I think that they'd be, they're, they're better played out um, through the narrative. But it is useful to have idea of what sort of weapon skill they've got, what sort of agility and intelligence level they are. But again, I think you're right there. You're not going to get into a stand-up fight with a bloodthirster, and if you do, you, you just you're just looking for a way to get your characters killed. Yeah, and the, and look, the, there will be the player out there who's like, okay, there's a bloodthirster there. I draw my sword and I go at it. Yes. You know, and I guess the stats are there, so the GM can say, okay, let's do this. Yes. <laughs> and you can kill that character, and then the character, the player can't say, oh, well, you just killed me out of hand. No, no, no. They are that powerful. Um, so again, plenty of adventure seeds. Um, like I said, that's the majority of this book. I can't really give a full-on description of this book, and um, it's just a bit too difficult because it is mostly just plot hooks. Alright. So, uh, there's, yeah. there's a last, there's a final chapter on um, uh, advanced adversaries, isn't there? Yes. Uh, this bit I can give a bit of a review on. Um, so, with your advanced adversaries it does cover using hordes um, advanced rules for that um, splitting hordes up advanced tactics for hordes um, what to do when hordes are made up of psychic opponents 
when you're doing mass battles and you've got a horde versus horde situation um, and horde talent so that you can actually have hordes of things which are specifically trained to work together and ways to use them in um, a slightly different method to what you would have done before. And this section goes back to what we talked about before, has some suggestions on how you might handle hordes in a miniature sort of style. Yes, yeah. Um, th- th- there is a nice sidebar on using hordes in the tabletop, and it gives a couple of uh, suggestions, such as use a model for each point of magnitude of the horde, rather than each model, e- each member of the horde. So, you know, a horde of 100 magnitude snotlings is probably more than just 100 snotlings. It'd probably number in the thousands. And this sort of thing, it it gives you that advantage so that you can do it if you've got a collection of models to do it with. And it also suggests ways of dealing with the fact that you're not going to move every single model every single turn to get them into base combat, so it gives them a sort of a, a range on their melee attacks and a, a system for doing that and other methods of doing it as well. Right, and there's a second option as well, isn't there? Yes, the, the second option it suggests is just to use a single figure and use a some sort of counter, a dice, uh, whatever you have, to indicate the, the current magnitude. However, as it suggests, with this sort of method, the footprint of this horde is obviously a lot larger than just a single model. So again, you'll probably have to use methods we described before, like uh, drawing on maps and that sort of thing. Alright, so... Uh, overall, Mike, how many uh, how many Dark Terrors from the Abyss would you give this book? Um... It's a difficult thing to say because it is mostly plot hooks. It really will depend on how much effort your GM is going to put into fleshing out these opponents, fleshing out the adventure seeds that they're given. Um, I'd say probably rates a healthy 7. In the hands of a particularly skilled GM, I think it, it can give you almost an unlimited amount of play from this book but in the hands of a GM who's not so keen to actually get his hands dirty, they're probably not going to find this anywhere near as useful. So, yeah, I'll, I'll have to go a 7. Yeah, and they, I, I'm, I'm going to agree with that. I'm going to say 7 as well. Interesting they didn't decide to include an adventure in this book. A lot of sort of similar books from other settings have included some sort of module in the back that's incorporated some of the opponents from the book. So Yeah, I agree with that, but I think they may have just run out of space. I mean, it is quite a thick book, and it does include a lot of detail in there for each of the opponents. But yeah, an adventure would have been nice. Yeah, I mean, this is... One of the great things with this book is if, you know, you've got your friends coming to play Death Watch today, you know, you've drawn a blank on what you want to do with them, literally just open the book to a page, look at the plot hooks and go, you know, I can use that. I think there's pretty much two plot hooks for every single opponent in the book. Yes, and and not just like two products for tower, but like two products for broad broadside battle suits. You know, two for fire warriors, um, two for crew hounds. You know, there, there, there's two for everything. Yeah, and that is the good part of it. Um, but like I said, I mean, it really will depend a lot on the quality of the GM who has it in their hands. All right, so get yourself a good GM, or be a good GM yourself, and this book will uh, will, will serve you well. Yes, absolutely. All right. Well, let's uh, close off the review section and move on to our final discussion. Yes. Ignorance is a blessing. The data you requested is unavailable. 
Welcome to our scene discussion, and today we wanted to have a bit of a talk about War Gear, because War Gear is one of those elements of 40k which is quite um, particular to the setting, uh, and uh, especially to Space Marines. I mean, you say War Gear, and some people say, well, you know, you just mean equipment, don't you? That's just another name for equipment or weapons, but I think that War Gear as a, as a component of fluff has a lot more meaning to it than simply being gear. Uh, because there's a, there's definitely a a reverence paid to war gear in the 40k setting as opposed to just something I have on me. Would you say that that's a, it's a, a fair analogy, Mark? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it, as far as they're concerned, if it's so long as it's of a technological nature, obviously a candle has no intrinsic value past being just a candle. But you know, anything from a cogitator down to a chainsaw has a machine spirit in it. it. Obviously, a cogitator's machine spirit is far more mighty than a chainsaw's fit, uh, machine spirit, but they really do believe that every machine is sentient and a part of the Omnissiah's graces. Yeah, so when a, an individual soldier, whether it's an Imperial Guardsman or a Marine, is given a piece of war gear, it's not simply, here is your duly appointed device, this is a um, uh, a contract you've entered into in terms of the maintenance and, and proper care and respect for the weapon or the item and its and its uh, machine spirit. Oh, absolutely. So every single item that a character uses of a technological nature is sacred in some way to someone. Yeah, and I think with Marines, like in Death Watch, it's, the, it's even more representative as such because Marines have gear which is so distinct from the rest of the setting that, uh, especially because, you know, uh, the chapter only has so many suits of power armor, only has so many weapons that if a, Marine, if a Marine falls in combat and his body is recovered, often his war gear will be reassigned to the, the acolyte or the initiate that takes his place later on. So, you know, the, the gear that a, a soldier carries has a background above and beyond just the man that's carrying it. Absolutely. I mean, every... Well, not everything, but the majority of war gear used has history. It will have, you know, a lineage, a list of names assigned to it of the people who have used it beforehand. And especially with Marines, they, they really do feel that this is an actual piece of the chapter's history. This suit of armour wasn't just worn by me. It wasn't just worn by the guy before me it could have well been worn in the original Great Crusade or, you know, in some great battle for if, if the chapter doesn't go back quite that far. Yeah, I mean, I'll, I'll draw an analogy to one of your favourite films here, Mike, the Ultramarines movie, oh. where uh, in that film, you know, no, no real spoilers here, is a uh, the, the battle barge the Marines come from has a relic on board which is known as the Hammer of McCrag. So this is a you know a weapon that has been used by ultramarines throughout the ages and and now is a a relic of the chapter and, and one of the lines in the film is when the uh, the apothecary is talking about the importance of the hammer. His final line is that uh, w- one day if you serve well you may earn the right to wield this hammer. Until that time you can kneel before it because it's such a a, a powerful artifact of the chapter that it has so much history that it, it deserves a reverence in and of itself. It's not just the man that carried it, it's the weapon that was part of that man's power. 
Absolutely. I mean, it wasn't the man who crushed the demon's skull. It was the hammer that crushed his skull. If he didn't have the hammer, he couldn't have crushed his skull. And that's the way they look at it. Yeah, I mean, this is almost... Uh, it, it's sort of like the, the classic example from Stan Kubrick's uh, Full Metal Jacket film, where the the soldiers at, at boot camp there from the Marines recite the line about um, the the importance of their own rifle, where they, they, they say that without... Without their rifle, they're nothing, and without them, their rifle is nothing. Yes. But it even goes to the point where it, it only dehumanizes the man. That the the you know the rifle without the man is still something. It's a, you know it's a powerful artifact of the Omnisar. So you know, I think there's definitely a different way that war gear is treated between something like the Imperial Guard and the Adeptus Astartes, though. Uh, and, and it comes down to the fact that you know Marines as a group have a different take on the ecclesiarchy, or have a different take on religion than the imperial ecclesiarchy. I mean, the most common example of that is that Marines generally don't refer to the God Emperor as the God Emperor. He's simply the Emperor. You know, there's no inference that the man himself is anything more than a, a very powerful psychic soldier. You know, he's not a, a divine being to Marines. And in many ways, the ecclesiarchy has to abide by the beliefs of the Marines because they are a, a unique force and a very important part of the Imperium but it, it can certainly cause issues where overzealous uh, missionaries decide to take a Marine to task over his failure to observe proper decorum about the God Emperor yep. uh, and so likewise that, that, that plays into all their activities so yes the way they treat a, an item or a piece of war gear has a religious quality to it but it may have a very different style to how an Imperial Guardsman treats uh, a lad's gun, you know, as to how a Marine will treat his bolter, because the observances are different, the the systems are different, and the beliefs are different. Yeah, I, I agree with most of that. And it's also the fact that the lad's gun is probably not an ancient relic. It was mass-produced on some forge world somewhere and given to him freshly minted, whereas the bolter has probably been handed down for generations. Not necessarily, because they do still manufacture new bolters, new power armor suits. And I'd like to point that out. They do manufacture new power armor suits, because if they didn't, they wouldn't be able to found new chapters, which they do on a regular basis. Yeah, or replace fallen marines. Exactly. Where, where the body yeah. isn't recovered. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly different restrictions on how you can modify war gear. So, you know, an Imperial Guardsman is given his last gun and told that, you know, it, it, in its current pattern, whether it's, you know, Cantrail or uh, Lucius, whatever else it might be, it is in a perfect state and you are not worthy enough of doing anything more than assisting in its maintenance. You know, yeah. you, you think it should have a, a different feature? Well, you know, there's, there's tens of thousands of years of, of intelligence about how this was developed that overrides your, your simple thoughts. Whereas... With the Adeptus Astartes, because of the involvement of tech marines and forge priests and the like, they do have the right to uh, to modify and develop their war gear as they go. You know, individual marines might, will eventually personalize their war gear to an extent. You know, it's why you see you know, with the even the miniatures, you'll often see them you know, in, with marines slight variances in the armor. You know, different symbols, different structures, different. Uh, embellishments and such because they do have the authority and they often use authority to personalise what it is they carry and wear. Yep, 
I'd agree with all of that. Uh, and this then leads into the sort of the ultimate form of war gear, which is the relic. And we did mention it earlier, but you know, any any bolter a marine carries is war gear, but not every bolter is a relic. Uh, and and what would you say, Mike, differentiates a relic from a piece of war gear? Um, there's two possibilities. The first is that it's simply a piece of archaeotech. It's a piece of technology so advanced with some feature which cannot be replicated with the current level of technology that puts it above other items of a similar ilk. So maybe it's a power sword which has got such a small, delicate, powerful field that it's able to cleave other power weapons in half. They can't replicate that, and it's at such a level that it is beyond these these lesser forms of power weapon. Therefore, it is a more powerful machine spirit it is a relic the other option is that it was used by a great powerful person to perform a great powerful deed so it may just be a chainsaw which was used to kill a bloodthirster as unlikely as that may sound and that has now become a relic I think that a common misconception is that a marine may say this is my relic blade you know that the, the majority of relic well pretty much every single relic is the property of the chapter and there are very few marines and usually they're only like chapter masters or you know uh, captains that are permanently assigned a relic yes usually they are kept in you know void void vaults or, or stasis crates or whatever it might be and only pulled out either for observance or for use in a specific battle yes and yeah. it's also probably important to point out that even then the chapter master wouldn't consider it his relic, it's still the chapter's relic, he's just using it while he is the current chapter master because he understands the chapter will go on long after he's gone he's just minding it until the next person takes it and they're just minding it for the next person, and that is probably how all marines view their relics and of course when a marine goes into Death Watch they don't take any war gear with them, or if they do, they don't take it with them, you know, because the equipment they're assigned with Death Watch is all Death Watch gear. If they are given the opportunity to use a relic, it's a Death Watch relic. Yes. Uh, you know, the, the, the armor that they wore, the firearms they carried, the relics they may have had access to with their chapter are the protection of the chapter and are required by the chapter to continue doing the things that it does even while it's missing one of its battle brothers. I'm not so sure about the armor. I always wondered about that because I think they may just paint over their old livery on their old, on their original armor rather than take a suit of Death Watch armor. I'm not a hundred percent sure on how that goes. Well, I, I always got the impression, looking in the main book, that when you look at the um, the history of the armor, there it's implied that the armor that the rolls you make on that table are all to do with the fact that the armor itself has. A, 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 a history pre the character within Death Watch. Yeah, that's fair enough. Yeah, like I said, I'm not a hundred percent on what the actual system is. Yeah, but only because it's not directly said anywhere. It's implied the way you've said it, but it's not said directly. Yeah, I mean, uh, I, the other thing is that um, if you're talking about the fluff, not necessarily how it's shown in the the book here, but uh, Death Watch armor is regarded as relic armour. It, it, it's better armour than a stand, than standard marine armour. So not a relic armour, artificer armour. Yes. Uh, is, is what most uh, Death Watch armour is considered to be. 
So not not every marine would have access to that prior to yeah, well, okay, entry to yeah, the death watch. I, I suppose yes. I, okay, I would agree with that. Yeah, I, I'll, yeah. I'll agree to your uh, your. Vote. You can see the point. Yes. Excellent. So let let it let it be let it be put in the record that James has won this conversation. Yeah, just for now. For, for now. now. <laughs> to be continued. Yeah. All right. So one last thing I want to say about relics is that it's not impossible for a relic to be lost or destroyed. And what are the implications there? Well, you're going to have a really bad day. I think is is the first thing. Like like we've said, it's a major part of the chapter. It's a link to their actual history. It's, you know, it has a spirit as far as they're concerned. It is like a living, breathing member of the chapter who's immortal. And if you lose or destroy it, yeah, it's it's a major blow. It's a major blow. Yeah, I mean, I think that if, if a marine was to lose or, or see destroyed a relic and then still survive that experience that would be a major major stain on their honour Absolutely. And, and many marines would certainly I believe anyway uh, quest or, or do whatever they could to try and restore that relic or its equivalent to the chapter yes. As a, and, and there are several books I've read or audio books I've listened to within the scope of the setting which, regard, which revolve around a number of marines Literally trying to recover a lost rep- relic of their chapter. Yeah. So. Absolutely, and I mean, that's it. I, I believe there's uh, in one of the books, Magnus the Red is defeated by uh, the Space Wolves, and they use a spear upon him, and the relic spear is lost. I can't remember the name of the book. It wasn't a particularly good book, I'll be honest. But they actually perceived even defeating Magnus the Red, the Demon Prince wasn't a good enough reason to lose this relic spear and that gives you sort of an idea of how higher how higher regard they hold relics um, yep. yeah they'd rather die than see a relic lost generally I mean we've, we've spoken in the past about how much we hate the whole you know you wake up from unconsciousness and all your gear is missing sort of thing but as a GM if you're running a game and one of the marines has to uh burn a fate point to survive the encounter so you know they would have received a fatal injury and instead burn a fate point and now they are you know unconscious at the edge of the battle but still alive when they come to they may discover that a piece of gear they had that is you know sacred to them or sacred to their chapter or sacred to death watch has been taken by the enemy and that may give you then a a a future plot you know the, the marine and his battle brothers may seek to regain the lost item yeah, I think that's that could work quite well. Yeah, all right. So there you go. The importance of war gear. I think it's a big part of any soldier in the in the forty k setting, and particularly uh, space marines. You know, once again, I will allude back to the Ultramarines movie where there's a good scene at the start where um, all the Ultramarines are kidding up basically, and there's various rituals being observed, servitors. Giving, uh, making rote statements that the Marines then echo regarding the the importance of the war gear. So it shows you the the reverence to which these men place upon their gear. Yeah. All right. Well, that's the end of our scene discussion. So let's uh, close off the show with our community section. Indeed. All astropaths to the choir chamber. Message incoming. All right. Welcome to our community section. Uh, so big first off, thank you to everybody who has. 
commented on our first seven episodes and, and given us feedback and uh, helped us continue to shape the show uh, and, and also recently joined and commented on our forums as well. So a couple of things I'll mention. Uh, first off, we had some comments from uh, Messiah side from Dark Rain uh, about our last episode where he felt that we may have uh, underrated the benefits of the cook role, the ship steward in uh, in Rogue Trader that potentially, you know, when your ship has crash landed on a planet and no one knows how to appropriately cook meals that, you know, they're going to miss having a ship steward. So uh, don't don't underestimate the cook. Uh, we also got some comments... Just eat the ratings. That's quite true, yes. That's what they're for. We also got some comments on Facebook from Armadeus Karlov, which may or may not be a pseudonym, uh, but uh, he commented about the show, so thank you very much for your comments. And he may also be the person that gave us a review. It's hard to tell with iTunes because iTunes reviews don't immediately appear. They take some time. They've got to be vetted to make sure that no one swore like Mike did earlier in this episode. And uh, We're all big boys now. <laughs> yep. And girls. Uh, Oh, I don't want to tag the. I don't want to tick the explicit tag when I upload this to iTunes. I'm going to say, well, and, and just on that on that girls topic, according to our Facebook page, less than two percent of our listeners are women aged 25 to 33, and that's the only female audience we've got. And we know exactly who that is as well. So, I think we can pretty much assume right now that we have a predominantly male audience. But uh, if there's any ladies out there that enjoyed the show, let us know as well, so we know we're not catering to just one gender exclusively. Uh, so I also mentioned that we mentioned on Facebook that uh, Mike and I this year are going along to Gen Con Indianapolis. Yes. So uh, neither of us have ever been, but uh, from speaking with the the guys at FFG recently, you know, we're, we're keen to go on there and and meet them. And it turns out there's a a large contingent of people in the community at Gen Con that are XGW people like us as well. So uh, I think it'd be great to get along, and you know, we both run or have run cons in Australia as well so obviously not anywhere near the scale of Gen Con so it'd be a good opportunity to see I've got to say so far that uh, the whole ticket buying and, and hotel buy- getting process has been pretty arduous you know if, if Gen Con is the best four days in gaming then the, the the three days between getting your tickets and getting your hotel rooms are pretty much the worst but it can only get better from here and, yes. and we're looking forward to it um, and lastly, our poll from our website, we've had about uh, which game system we, we interview FFG about. Uh, Dark Heresy 2nd Edition has been a, a clear winner in that particular respect. So I spoke yesterday with um, Tim Huckleberry from FFG, and he has agreed to be interviewed for us, or interviewed by us. And that'll be for our 11th episode, which is our next Dark Heresy episode. So that gives us time to iron out technical bugs and... and get some questions written and uh, if you want to contribute to what questions we're going to ask there is a topic on the forums as well where you can do that uh, so just keep in mind we can't ask questions about products that aren't yet released so saying something like when will you bring out a book about blah isn't going to get an answer unfortunately but uh, if you want to know about the background to the, the books or their experiences or how to get into game writing these are all sort of questions we'd certainly encourage you to, to ask us to ask Tim when we interview him in a few weeks time yes uh, so, if you do want to get in contact with us, there are a plethora of ways to do so. We have a website, which is www.grimdarkpodcast.com. Uh, we're on Facebook at facebook.com slash grimdarkpodcast, and also on Google+, Plus, which is plus.google.com slash little plus symbol grimdarkpodcast. 
we tweet through at grimdartpodcast and you can also email us at show at grimdartpodcast.com and as I mentioned before we have forums now uh, which are being hosted very graciously by the guys over at Dark Rain so the address there is darkrain.org slash forum or you can follow the link from our website as well so just to conclude I'll mention what's happening in episode 9 uh, we're back around talking about Black Crusade we're going to have a discussion about the favour of the gods so and everything that comes from that corruption, mutation, gifts and uh, how that whole system works we're going to go into the uh, apostate archetype uh, we're going to talk about ways that you can run Black Crusade games within the Imperium so considerations there about how you handle things like mutations and Chaos Space Marines and finally we plan to do a review of Tome of Blood so, Mike, thank you for your part in tonight's show. Yep. And thank you to our listeners for listening. I hope you enjoyed the show, and we will see you next time. Yes. This podcast is not endorsed by or affiliated with Games Workshop or Fantasy Flight Games. Warhammer 40,000, Dark Heresy, Rogue Trader, Death Watch, Black Crusade, Only War, Eternal Crusade, and all associated properties are trademark and or copyright of Games Workshop Limited. Fantasy Flight Games is a trademark of Fantasy Flight Publishing Inc., all other materials are trademark and or copyright of their respective owners. All original content is copyright of the Grimdark Podcast. All rights are reserved by their respective owners. Our theme music comes from Mibio's Media Gallery, music.mibio.com. okay but it was really difficult book to review just because of its nature yeah it's yeah. a collection of plot hooks yeah I mean what am I supposed to do tell them what all the plot hooks are well, ah I forgot I was, I was going to also ask you what your favourite um, what your favourite thing from it was that's right I can go without that would you have had a favourite monster from it oh absolutely yeah which one uh, the Carnifex because ah, okay. it's a Carnifex <laughs> <laughs> what more reason do you need if you want, you can ask me that and then you can just cut it in somewhere. That's all right. Okay.